I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Brett Stetka, MD. His new book is A History of the Human Brain, From the Sea Sponge to CRISPR, How Our Brain Evolved. Just 125,000 years ago, humanity was on a path to extinction until a dramatic shift occurred. We used our mental abilities to navigate new terrain and changing climates. We hunted, foraged, tracked tides, shucked oysters, anything we could do to survive. Before long, our species had pulled itself back from the brink and was on more stable ground. What saved us? The human brain. And its evolutionary journey is journey is unlike any other. Brett Stetka, MD, Dr. Stetka takes us on this far-reaching journey, explaining exactly how our most mysterious organ developed. A non-practicing physician and editorial director of Medscape.com, his work has appeared in NPR Scientific American Magazine, Wired, The Atlantic, and more. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stetka. Thank you for having me, Catherine. And just a warning, my new home office during quarantine is my screened-in porch, so you might hear a few birds. Okay, well, that sounds good. I'd like hearing a few birds. You know, I've been quarantined <laughs> for a year. That's not a bad thing. Uh, that's a good thing. I'll so, try to, okay, I'll try to minimize talk- them, but... Yeah, right. The well, the title of your book, or I guess the, the from this well, history of the human brain, but sea sponge to CRISPR. That's a big range. Sometimes I feel like that we are still at the sea sponge stage. So I want to talk about that. Have we? <laughs> and uh, you know, I know there's a lot in between. So uh, okay, so let's talk, let's start from the beginning. I mean, let like the I really like to know the sort of the. Um, the benchmarks or the incremental marks of, you know, where our brain began to change or evolve from that C-spun to CRISPR? Sure. So that was a big surprise for me in researching this book. Um, I hadn't really thought about C-sponges very much in my, uh, in my 42 years. Um, <laughs> but the actual C-sponge, the same sponges that, you know, you can still buy at Target to, you know, scrub, scrub ourselves, um, they were probably the first animal to evolve on Earth. This was around 700 million years ago. Um, and, you know, I, I had no idea the case. And in researching it, it turns out that their cells communicate much in the same way that our brain cells or our neurons communicate. Um, they use electrical currents like our brain cells do, and they use many of the same chemicals or neurotransmitters that our, our brain cells do. So in a way, that, you know, is a big turning point or really the the beginning of the evolution of the human brain, um, even though it technically does not have a nervous system. And then you get slightly more complex creatures like jellyfish and comb jellies, and eventually, uh, you know, fish as we think of them, uh, you know, cartilaginous fish like sharks and rays, bony fish like, like salmon and all the fish that we, you know, ingest. Um, and, you know, so you can kind of really trace that per- that trajectory and by the time you get fish you know 350 400 million years ago you have the the inklings of our brain you have a three uh, segmented brain that looks a little bit like ours and you start seeing brain regions form um, like the thalamus and early the early memory and emotional centers very primordial primordial versions of that but you really do see uh, the animal brain forming and then that trajectory just continues and continues t- through mammals and or amphibians reptiles mammals primates apes like us um, but really we all share the same you know structural foundation of a brain 
So when you say apes like us, what do you mean apes like us? Uh, so the so we qualify, most most scientists consider us an ape, um, meaning one one set of one branch of the primate lineage. So uh, primates evolved around sixty six sixty million years ago after the dinosaurs went extinct. Um, you get you get lemurs and lorises and and then monkeys evolve and then lineages branch and and one of them evolves into just slightly more intelligent slightly larger primates and these are your apes so you end up with orangutans chimpanzees bonobos which are very close cousins to chimpanzees and and then the many species of humans uh, or hominins as they're called um, as we're, we're when we're one of them that evolved um, so, yeah, so the, the apes today are humans, bonobos, chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans. And then so, in other words, it apes. seems like, we, as you're describing it, and I think you say this in the book, we're like cousins. We're all cousins. It's not sort of this we're linear. Cousins, yeah. yeah not we're all, we're one, all cousins. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is very believable, actually. <laughs> I used uh, to well, think just look maybe. at their fingers at the zoo. They, uh, they, yeah. There are a lot of human-like characteristics, which Darwin noted 150 years ago. Uh, so how did you get interested in, in, well, this is evolution, but you're a physician. You went to the University of Virginia. I guess I, I do have some information. You, you were, what, eight years old? You were interested in Einstein's theory of evolution, of, of evolution of... of oh, relativity? Uh, relativity. I just blanked on the word, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't understand it at all. But So my dad was a scientist. He was a career geneticist. He taught at the University of uh, Buffalo um, and then started his own genetics lab. So science was in the household. He had science books sitting around, biology books, uh, even microscopes. Um, uh, And so I was just, you know, very, very interested in it from an early age and probably trying to get his attention. So I was excited about relativity and photosynthesis really young. And he would always say, well, I'll explain that when I'm older. Uh, and I, you know, said, I'm not sure he understood relativity at all, but he was, you know, he was trying. And um, so I knew I'd probably go into the sciences. Music was my other interest. And, um, you know, that seemed less likely that I would get a job. Uh, so I ended up going to medical school, doing a lot of neuroscience research, um, and just loved the brain because it, it really is the final frontier of understanding the body and humanity and how we experience, you know, consciousness in the world. And um, so, so Brett, talk approach. to us about you say history of the you know the brain is the sure. final frontier. What does that mean? This is like yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's. So I was told in medical school by a professor. Um, this was probably in two thousand and three-ish, that the understanding of the brain is where the understanding of the heart was in the 1950s. And I think that that's an incredibly generous estimate, but it really piqued my interest because, you know, I'm not sure we'll ever really understand the brain. It's such an amazing complex entity in the the universe. And um, so scientists are trying, and of course, we're we're understanding how conditions like Alzheimer's and multiple sclerosis work better and better every day, but it's such a fascinating organ that to me... And no offense to the cardiologist out there or the, uh, you know, the nephrologist, but, you know, the, the heart felt explainable. It felt like a pump and the brain felt like an enigma that I, I, I wanted to try my best to understand how it worked. So in your research, what's the most, I, I guess, sort of your, have you uncovered any 
exciting kinds of research that really s- surprised you in this whole process? I suppose it ha- you're being more and more surprised every single day as we're getting, I want to get to the CRISPR thing because I'm fascinated with that. But yeah, so what's the most exciting thing for you in researching this book, for instance? Sure. Well, certainly that sea sponge uh, revelation was, was strange and exciting, but um just the, the course of, of humanity, how closely we are related to other apes, and just observing ape behavior was, was pretty fascinating. Uh, I had a lot of experiences observing uh, bonobos uh, one at the San Diego Zoo that I write about, um, just watching how human-like they can be in both ways, you know, bad and good. Um, you know, bonobos are incredibly kind and benevolent in some cases. Um, they're matriarchal, so their communities are dominated by the females, which people joke is why they don't, uh, you know, make war on their neighbors and, and aren't that violent. <laughs> so um, they're on the right track if they're, uh, they're on the, matriarchal, <laughs> in my book right anyway. Yeah. But yeah. The, the strange side of that, though, is they're hypersexual. So the females keep the angry men in check with a lot of sexual activity, which can make it difficult to take your kid to the zoo to watch them, <laughs> which, as I witnessed. Um, but, but then maybe that's a good pick, thing, that, isn't that? That's that's a good way to teach your kids about uh, sexuality, isn't it? That's it probably a, is. I mean, they're yeah. they're called the free love hippies of the ape world. Um, <laughs> like very frequent sex in any form you can imagine, and that really does quell the violence in in the violent males. Um, yeah, and so the, the the females run the show, and it's very you know a very communal, nice experience. And then uh, you know we're also equally related to chimpanzees. And they're violent. Uh, they're violent as hell. They gang. They're the only other species that gangs up to murder members of their own species. They'll go on these these missions to murder neighboring communities. So you know you can see us in both of these species: our our, our dark side and our our free love, uh, kind, benevolent side in in the bonobo. So that was that was fascinating. And you know that's something that Jane Goodall famously. Um, exposed the world to in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, yeah, and then just where the brain's going. Like you, you mentioned CRISPR and genetic engineering. You know, that's something we're going to have to reckon with and address in the, in the coming decades. Well, let's talk about CRISPR. Uh, maybe define it, because, you know, people bring up the conversation with CRISPR, but I don't know that everybody necessarily understands exactly what it is. Um, genetic sure, engineering, so- yeah, let's go. It's really, think of it as a way for scientists to literally edit our genome, so our, our genetic code, our DNA, uh, and the sequence of our DNA. So we've, you know, genetic engineering technologies have been around for decades, but n- these newer ones, and CRISPR is the one that gets most of the attention, literally allows you to go in and remove uh, a specific gene that might cause a disease and uh, replace it with, with the normal copy of that gene. Um, which is great, and in, in mostly investigational settings, um, scientists have already done this. So if you have a disease like hemophilia that's caused by a specific mutation, you can go in, har- harvest, uh, uh, say, a patient's bone marrow where, where blood cells are made. And it, a hemophilia is a disease where blood cells don't work properly because they don't have a, the right uh, protein called hemoglobin. So you go in, get the, the blood cells, you literally use CRISPR to change that gene, and now they're getting, you know, they're getting more oxygen to their lungs and their body. So that patient now will live. And that, that can be done in embryos if you're doing IVF to save children with a condition that, you know, might shorten their lifespan. So it's, it's fascinating. It's a little freaky in a science fiction kind of way. And the big concern 
is, you know, designer babies and pe- parents or, or scientists going in and inserting desirable traits for, say, intelligence or height or, you know, name your, name your traits, um, which I think is not a huge concern for now. I think that's years, if not decades, down the road because things like intelligence are so complex and involve environmental interactions with genes and um, but it is a concern and it will be a possibility so it's it's a fascinating area um, and I think we have to wait and see how it plays out and, and hopefully it's done ethically I was uh, I, I, I was watching a, a show uh, maybe I don't know maybe it was Smithsonian and they were talking about in terms of of uh, CRISPR, the disease of progeria, where children, I guess, are very few, but they're born and they they age they so age. quickly, you know, yeah. yeah, and that they were able to use CRISPR or this process to uh, prevent that from happening. To and the, of course, that has implications, I guess, for aging for all of us, right? Just edit the gene, and you'll be. It does. I mean, young uh, forever. Yeah, I mean, that that's the scary part too. If if we can identify how. You know what causes us to, uh, you know, what, why is our lifespan limited? If we can ever figure that out, and it certainly probably involves our DNA and and you know, the the tips of our chromosomes called telomeres. Sure, that you know that we could have our lives extended to the point where we'll have a population crisis. Who knows? But uh, yes, something like progeria, you can um, if it's if you know if it's a form caused by a genetic mutation. Yeah, you can go in when uh, into a child or into a, an embryo and. And correct that. So we'll have a whole population of old people that everybody. <laughs> that would be a, new, that, a whole new well, problem to. Uh, well, that's to, a uh, whole new approach. issue. I mean, I'm a baby boomer, so I can say it. I can, but you know, how, do you need more baby boomers? I'm not sure, but anyway, um, <laughs> it's interesting. It's it's fascinating. Yeah. So how does this all um, relate to artificial intelligence AI? Yeah, that's a bit. That's another big question. So, I think the, the I think the big question among computer scientists, of which you know I'm I'm not a computer scientist. It's not my area, but I've I've listened to plenty of them um, discuss this. Is that it's it's hard to envision AI as being as replicating a real human brain and and real human consciousness and having that experience of being conscious. Um, but it's still a question if you have a computer or an AI system that can interact in a believable human way and respond in a meaningful way and, and appear to express emotion and empathy, is that, uh, is, is, is that what it is to be conscious? Um, the, you know, they call consciousness an emergent um, process. Like you put all these neurons together and all of a sudden we are these cognizant beings living in the world with our subjective experiences can that be replicated in a machine? And I tend to think not, and a lot of philosophers and computer scientists think the same thing. They think that even the most advanced forms of AI are still going to be simulations of that experience, um, just because computers work differently than the brain. Uh, you know, we, call, we always you know, refer to our brains as a computer, and it's a, it's, a, it's a nice metaphor, but they just work differently, and there's thousands of chemicals and you know, pulsating blood vessels and, and fat and proteins and carbohydrates. It's just a lot different than a chip that works on, you know, your binary ones and zeros. Um, so I think we will develop machines that will act a lot like us, like Siri or Alexis, and that could be a dangerous thing, certainly if they start feeling pain. Um, and how would we, you know, if they take on these 
real human qualities, that could be a disaster. Um, I think a bigger worry is that we're growing, we're literally growing organs called organoids with uh, stem cells, even with 3D printers, um, including um, tiny, what you could call brains. They're really a collection of neurons that have activity that you would see in a fetal brain. And so what if that starts feeling pain or feeling something? And how would we know it if it can't speak to us? Um, so there's a lot of these really science fiction aspects of ongoing neuroscience research that I think we have to consider. It's interesting, and I'm thinking about the reaction to, well, you, you talked about, uh, I'm thinking about Siri. You mentioned Siri, and I had my sure. four-year-old grandson was on his computer or on his iPad, and Siri popped up, and he started, his reaction to her was like she was a human person. He said, stop bothering me, Siri, and I'm doing this, and I hear him. He is having this whole conversation, you know, and Grammy tells Siri to be quiet, and it was like, it was a, it's, yeah, uh, but, yeah. It's scary. So, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, she, Siri herself can, you can, you can feel like you're really having a conversation, so imagine us 20 years from now, what computer science has done, like, it is going to be a, a hard thing. Is, is, is she conscious? Is that, is that a real individual in there or not? Uh, but again, I don't think so. Yeah. All right. Well, we talk about, well, here, the brain is obviously very complex, but still, we're still talking. I think the layperson, you know, we talk about the right brain, left brain kind of situation. But mm-hmm. as you say in your book, that's not really true. That's not how our brain works. Talk to us about that. There are two, the two big misconceptions I highlight in the book about the brain are exactly that. That's the first. So the right brain, left brain, um, I guess I'll call it a trope, has gone back decades. And it was the idea that people that are more creative tend to use their right brain more often. Um, and people that are more analytical or mathematical use their left brain. And that's, you know, there were some psychology studies Many years ago, I think that that's based on, but that is that's really not true. I mean, each you know there is some lateralization, as you call it, or asymmetries in function. Um, but a big one is that our language is produced from the left side of our brain, our quote unquote analytical side. So, language is a pretty creative pursuit, um, and I, and really, whether you're an artist, a, a musician, a mathematician, or Albert Einstein, you're you're using all of both sides of your brain all the time. They're always communicating with each other. Um, there's a theory, I think, I think, you know, Einstein's brain itself was actually analyzed uh, or autopsied over the years many times, and that maybe he had more connections between the two sides of his brain. So the more you have communication between the two sides can increase aptitudes and intelligences, but, but for the most part, we, both, uh, we all use both sides of our brain. Um, and then the other misconception is that we only use 10% of our brains, um, which has been going around for years. Uh, and that's not true. That's we, <laughs> that one is more believable, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe if you're just sitting around watching Netflix and, do, and not right. thinking about anything, um, you might be not much as firing. But, you know, we're, right. we're always taking in sights and sounds that activate our visual cortex and our auditory cortex. We're, we use most of our brain at, at certain times and during certain activities. Um, so that's the other kind of fun one to, to debunk. That's interesting. Yeah. So our um, those are the, I guess those are the two, as you mentioned in the book, the two main misconceptions, right? Yeah, those are the two brain ones. And then in evolutionary sense, the other one I think that often gets um, 
misinterpreted is that, you know, evolution is a linear process and that, you know, apes evolved from monkeys and then man evolved from other apes. And it's, uh, you know, like the T-shirts with the monkey, the line of the monkey, then the ape, and then the human, and the human with the iPhone. Um, whereas it's not, it's not like we evolved from chimpanzees. It's that we share a common ancestor 7 million years ago, and we've each had our own lineage since then that's been evolving. So they've been evolving for 7 million years just as our lineage has. And um, it's, it's a really messy family tree evolution and, and biology. It's, it's not a clean picture as, as you would expect from a process that's driven by random uh, mutation and genetic change. Um, so yeah, so think of evolution as just a scrambled mess of branches. Most of them die out. Most species go extinct, including many, many other human species over the last few million years. And, you know, we happen to be a little more adaptable to our environment and, and stuck around, just as chimpanzees for now have, unless, uh, you know, we, we, we off <laughs> them at some point, which could happen. Yeah, which definitely could happen. But I'm thinking about, you know, you talk about genetic mutations and stuff. And isn't that all related to, and I think you talk about this in the book. I mean, our environment has a lot to do with it. You talk about our food, our our food, our resources, you know, we're able to, I, I think you mentioned that uh, once we were able to satisfy ourselves in, in terms of what we could eat and have enough to eat, we could focus on other things besides trying to find food. And that helped kind of push us ahead in the evolutionary process? Yes, for sure. So I, I feature a number of the influences that probably drove our evolution and the evolution of our brain. Um, being social was incredibly important. Primates are very social. Uh, you, you look at a group of monkeys in the trees or, or chimpanzees, incredibly social communities. That was important. We ended up with you know, creativity, developing symbolic communication, you know, gestures and, and sounds and eventually language. And um, But, yeah, a big one was how adaptable and omnivorous we were in our environment. So that's sort of, the, you know, you could define evolution um, generally as, you know, ch- change from generation to generation and surviving based on being adaptable in your ecology or in your environment so you you have the opportunity to procreate, to survive and procreate and pass along your genes. And we developed this incredibly broad diet. You know, humans eat just about anything. We can live on, on meat or fish or vegetables or fruits or grass. Um, that's, and that's pretty rare in, in nature. Um, so throughout you know, the past 7 million years, say, since our lineage split with chimps, you know, the African, we all evolved, descend from a population in Africa and the, the climate they're shifted many times over millions of years. And if the fruit in the forest dried up, we could, you know, traipse out on the, uh, the plains or the savanna and dig up roots and eat grasses and, and vice versa. We eventually learned to track tides and eat, eat shellfish and fish and fish and lakes. And that's part of what provided the calories for our brain to uh, really expand. And, and that was entwined with creativity, the better spear makers and shellfish makers probably were more apt to survive and pass along their genes. So it's a well, big given that, what of influences. <laughs> I, oh, I'm interrupting you, but, you know, given oh. that, and now we've learned to eat fast foods and processed foods, and now we're obese, how is that going? How does that impact our brain? So that's, unfortunately, that's hardwired because, you know, even a, hundred, a couple hundred years ago, we're, our lifespan was half of what it is now. So imagine... 125,000 years ago, we're only living to 35, so diabetes isn't a concern, obesity is not really a concern, 
So if you're in, if you're hunting and gathering and you encounter a massive you know fruit tree, a huge source of sugar, you're going you're going to eat as much as you possibly can and save some for your family and your community. Um, and you're not going to worry about diabetes because you're going to be dead long before uh, <laughs> diabetes is a problem. <laughs> Same with meat. You know, once we can access meat and have this, uh, or or fish or shellfish, like this massive source of reliable calories, you're going to eat as much as possible. Um, and fire comes along, and now we can preserve our meat. Uh, we learn to harness fire, and, and, and now we can pursue other things like being creative. So we're we're stuck with this drive to eat. Reese's cups and Big Macs because we need fat and we need sugar to survive. But uh, but but now we live so long that we see the ramifications of that, and you know that's a huge problem going forward because global diet is pretty pretty processed, um, despite local food movements and you know wealthier communities trying to focus on you know healthy diets. But you know among the eight billion of us, our our diet is pretty bad. So does that fat actually go to your brain? I mean, it does it go throughout your, you know what I'm saying? Is it circulating in your, it's in your whole body? It's- sure, the brain is made of about 60% fat, um, and that's why we need it. And and the good fats, like omega-3 fatty acids like DHA and EPA that are best sourced from seafood are incredibly healthy for the brain and may preserve our cognition and, and slow the risk of dementia. Um you know, so yeah, we we need we need all the essential. We need the three pillars of nutrition: carbohydrates, fat, and and protein. And and we can get those from many you know plant sources, animal sources. But uh, but yeah, certain ingredients like omega threes can can uh, tip the scales a little bit toward preserving your cognition. Well, it's fascinating talking to you, and I, I want to recommend the book again because we only have a couple minutes left. So the title of the book is A History of the Human Brain, From the Sea Sponge to CRISPR, How Our Brain Evolved. And um, I've been talking to Brett Stetka, MD, and he is the editorial director at Medscape.com, which I don't think I said in the beginning is the professional division of WebMD.com, which most of us, it's my primary care physician. Um <laughs> Thank you for Uh, that. Thank you for supporting us. (laughs) Yes, I do. Uh, So give us a web. Well, that's one website, but that's obviously a primary one. Uh, Other website where we can go to buy your book and uh, to um, get information about uh, whatever things you are doing now or in the future. Uh, Sure. You can buy the book wherever books are sold. Uh, If you Google my name, Brett Stetka, or A History of the Human Brain, you will get my my publisher's website, workman.com, and my other publisher, timberpress.com. They'll come right up. The Amazon site will come right up for the book. And if you go to bookshop.org, I always encourage people to support your local books, and you can actually order through most local bookstores on bookshop.org. So, uh, yeah, and I I would just Google A History of the Human Brain and and order it the way you prefer. Great. Thanks so much, Dr. Brett Setka, for being on the show Thank today. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, this was, it was fun. A Thanks pleasure. for having me. It was great. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. <laughs> 